You will go home and tell stories of your time in Russia, and no one will believe you, my host joked. It was the early aughts, winter in St. Petersburg, or Petersburg, as the locals call it. I had come as a missionary to help children learn English during their winter break, and my host was right. There were so many things I did not understand about this culture or the people of this mysterious world with vast, expansive social and cultural history. For example, why do they let cats roam free in the restaurants to eat from people's plates? This is Christian Curious, and I'm your host, Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Each week, we tackle some of the hardest, most pressing questions facing Christians in the 21st century. Today, I'm discussing the question, what is happening in Ukraine and why is it important with Dr. Mark Elliott. Dr. Mark Elliott is a retired professor of history, and he publishes the East-West Church and Ministry Report, a clearinghouse for information relevant to the status of Christianity and Christian ministry in the former Soviet Union and Central and Eastern Europe. This is de- it is designed to encourage cooperation and coordinated efforts among Christian ministries working in the East. He earned his Ph.D. in Modern European and Russian History from the University of Kentucky. Dr. Elliot, welcome to Christian Curious. Happy to be here. You know, you have been studying um, Europe, Central Europe and Asia for nearly 50 years. So you bring so much experience and so much thought to the current crisis that we're seeing in Ukraine. And I'm curious as to what first drew your interest to this region. Well, as a major in history as an undergraduate, I had basically two choices at that time in the school I attended, Europe and America, and I always found European and Russian history fascinating. And my wife jokes that uh, the reason I chose European and Russian history is because there's more of it <laughs> compared to American history. That is so true. It is It is so true. I mean, you, you go to the land and you can, it's steeped in history and you can almost feel it just by being there. It's, it's really, truly incredible. Um, everyone who sees the in- images coming out of Ukraine, um, are pretty horrified by what's happening. Um, based on your expertise, what can help us better explain what's going on? Because, you know, as I mentioned to you off the air, I've read papers that, and, uh, you know, inf- and papers and documents that you've written long before um, this broke out. Um, what is actually happening? What do people need to know about, about um, what's happening in Ukraine? Well, in terms of trying to understand why Putin chose to invade Ukraine, and I think it really was his singular decision. I don't think his advisors had any part in making the decision. Uh, There are probably a host of factors, but I think one of the biggest is that Ukraine is a threat to Putin, but not in the military sense, which is what he's touting in his propaganda, but rather in the uh, sense of Ukraine being a tolerant, prosperous, successful democracy. 
And I don't think he likes that example adjacent to the Russian border. And I think that's one of the big reasons. But there are a host of others. I think he dreams of reconstituting the old Soviet empire, which was the successor of the Russian empire. Um, I think he also thinks of Ukraine as an illegitimate state. It has no justification for existence because, in his mind, Ukrainian land is Russian land. Um, another factor would be that um, the prospect of adding 44 million Ukrainians may appeal to him if he conquers the whole country. Why so? Because in 1988, the Soviet Union was 288 million. Today, the Russian population, the Russian Republic, is 146 million and falling. So maybe he thinks adding 44 million would help things demographically. Right. And the country is suffering in other ways, that is Russia economically, because um, its GDP is now no longer than the state of Texas. So there are a host of factors and others I could mention, but you may want to go on to other questions. Well, you know, the the very first one, I think, is of critical importance because it's an ideological war against um, d democratic freedoms. And, yes. you know, I know that, you know, I have friends in Russia who have dachas, their country homes in Ukraine, or people who actually live in Russia who come from Ukraine. And so there, right there is a gap where democracy can actually has the possibility of leaking in to to um, to Russia. That's correct. Um, in a recent letter, you mentioned that you've that some have chosen to flee. You are very connected with people on the ground there, and some have chosen to flee while others are hiding in subways and basements. What factors do you think go into making the decision to stay or go? Well, I think the most obvious one is the level of bombing and the, the level of existential threat that individuals feel. I know people, for example, who stayed in Kiev, the capital, um, for many days, hunkering down in basements and subway passages, but uh, just in the last day or so have fled to the West if they could get out. And, of course, that's um, a dangerous proposition, either by train or car. Those are the last two remaining options for trying to flee. Right. So it's, the, it's determined on level. Do you think that some people have elected to stay there because they just hope to ride it out? Or are they staying to um, ensure, you know, kind of stand their ground? Well, I think... Both are accurate statements. Uh, I know individuals, for example, who have driven to Poland, dropped off their families, and returned to Ukraine either to fight or to serve in ministries. Uh, just to give you one example, I know of one individual who did just that, took his family to the West, came back to Irpin, the suburb that's been devastated just in the last week by heavy Russian shelling and fighting, and uh, he has helped to serve bread that European Bible Seminary was producing on a daily basis until it was overrun by Russian troops just a couple of days ago. Right, and 
how what is his condition right now? Do you know his status? I don't. Okay. That's uh, really one of the agonies for me. Some people that I know, I know their status. Others, I don't. And, and it changes daily as well. Right. It's imagine, I imagine it's so hard to stay on top of. Um, what are some of the, as you watch the coverage on the news, um, do you see anything that um, needs to be corrected or needs to be added that can help us understand what's happening in Ukraine? Are there, is there misinformation coming out or is the coverage pretty solid? Well, of course, the coverage is all over the map, good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, Russian propaganda is in full swing. Uh, sadly, there are folk in the West wanting to believe the Russian propaganda. For example, just in the last 24 hours, Russia has charged that the U.S. has been funding biological weapon laboratories in Ukraine. There's no truth to that. But there are people not only in Russia, but believe it or not, among Christians in the United States who are adopting that sort of propaganda. Um, back to your initial question of what's not being covered, uh, I think one story that has received practically no coverage, uh, to my knowledge, is the fact that Ukraine is an, a res remarkably strong Christian nation. I'm not saying the whole country is Christian, but I'm saying compared to most countries in Europe and compared to Russia, there is a very strong Christian presence in Ukraine. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, there are more Orthodox churches in Ukraine than there are in Russia, even though Ukraine has a third of the population of Russia. And the same is true for many other Christian confessions and denominations. For example, there's a very strong and energetic and dynamic Christian presence among Baptists, Pentecostals, Catholics, Adventists. Um, one fascinating factor, and I was able to edit an article for my East-West Church and Ministry report on this, is the phenomenon of Ukrainians, Ukrainians serving as missionaries outside Ukraine to countries around the world, but above all countries to Russia. How ironic is it that Ukraine has sent so many missionaries, especially to Siberia, the Russian Far East, and the northern portion of European Russia. Just amazing. There are more Christians on the ground than is being reported in the media, and it is not being reported as Ukraine being such a mighty Christian empire. Um, when we return, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what churches are doing right now to help the people of Ukraine that have stayed. Are you ready to earn a master's degree, but concerned about fitting more into your already busy schedule? Visit denverseminary.edu to learn more about our fully online programs, financial aid opportunities, and more. The education you receive at Denver Seminary will challenge you to grow spiritually, intellectually, relationally, and professionally. Learn more today at denverseminary.edu.
This is Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott. I'm here with Dr. Mark Elliott, who is an expert in the area of Ukraine and Russia relations. And we were just before the break, we were just talking about some of the the work that Christians have been doing in Ukraine. It Dr. Elliott mentioned that one of the things that is not being reported in the news is how deeply of a Christian nation the Ukraine is. Um, Dr. Elliot, can you give us a little bit more information about what you're hearing, church, how are churches serving right now? How are they serving the people that are still in the Ukraine right now? Well, I would say there are at least six to ten denominations that have active relief work going on. There are many mission organizations working on the border in Poland, in Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, also within Ukraine itself. And there are even private individuals. Uh, I read an account, as I'm sure many others have, of private citizens from Western Europe driving to Poland uh, to drop off relief materials. So it's really, uh, in, in this respect, an inspiring story across political lines, across denominational lines, uh, across national lines. It's heartwarming in this sense to see some of the efforts going on. And I'll just mention a couple. Uh, Oleg Turlock was a student of mine in Moscow and then later at Stanford University when I taught there. He has a wonderful ministry out of Toronto called Turlock Ministries. He's serving uh, perhaps the largest and maybe the most effective of all the mission organizations that I know of is Mission Eurasia, which is headed by Sergei Rahuba. And Sergei, ironically, is from the Donbass region, Donetsk, in eastern Ukraine, which has been held by separatist forces supported by Russia since 2014. Uh, Sergei Rahuba is in, uh, as far as I know, is in Poland right this minute, and he is marshalling his large ministry to provide relief, uh, food, water, clothing, spiritual counsel, Bibles, uh, transportation, uh, all manner of uh, efforts, both in among the refugees and also within uh, Ukraine itself. Many other ministries I could mention. Salvation Army is doing good work. Uh, just, just dozens, really. Well, you know, whenever uh, Putin first started the invasion in Ukraine, I think, you know, I, along with many other people, expected it just to fold. And then we see uh, President Zelensky standing there basically on the front line holding his ground. And it was an incredible show of courage and bravery that really has inspired the world. And are you so are you surprised at how they're standing their ground as the the rest of the world is, or knowing the Russian the Ukrainian people as you do, did you expect that? Well, I have to confess, I did not anticipate the level and the strength of Russian excuse me of Ukrainian resistance. It's really been a remarkable story, and there have been so many surprises, you know. About the only thing you can say about war, for sure, is that there will be surprises. They never go as anticipated, one way or the other. And um, 
to give you another example, again, speaking of President Zelensky, is um, the strength of his presence. You know, many Western commentators did not expect much of him. After all, how much can a comedian do right. <laughs> holding the nation together and inspiring the nation? But I'll say, among other things, one of his strengths is social media. And people were so fearful of um, Russian hackers and Russian IT expertise. But I think the Ukrainians have done a better job of it than Russia so far. And Zelensky, of course, is a great example of it. Who can forget his um, Zoom presentation to the American Congress and the British Parliament? Right. Very inspiring. And, you know, as a historian, I couldn't help but think of, to some degree, an analogy with Winston Churchill. He inspired his nation when there was not much military hope in 1940. Absolutely. And Britain was holding out almost by itself, Hitler having conquered almost the entire European continent. And um, Churchill gave inspiring speeches, and I think Zelensky as well has made inspiring speeches. If I could just share one other historical analogy, one thing that struck me was Putin's saying that originally he just wanted to protect the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. Right. That's similar to what Hitler said. All I want to do is protect the German Sudetens in Czechoslovakia. And then after he took that territory, he proceeded in 1938-39 to absorb the whole country, and then it was just a domino, Poland, and on and on we could go. And I think Putin is doing the same thing. He's saying to start with, I just want to protect Russian-speaking people, the so-called Ruski Mir, or the Russian world, which is his shorthand for, in essence, saying, I really want to take over every place in the world that has Russians. Right. So, yeah, it, I, that is a definite, both of those comparisons are dead on, you know, for for President Zelensky to be care, compared to Churchill in most cases is a high compliment indeed. And, you know, you can't th- help but think of Churchill's um, battle on a hill. And then also the whole fact of going back to World War II and, again, like you said, uh, Hitler just wanted the German-speaking nations, but he couldn't stop there because the power and the the thrill of the power overtook him. You know, what are you hearing from people on the ground that may not be reported on the news that you think is important for people to know? Well, I think the level of day-to-day individual resistance, uh, we're seeing and hearing a good bit about that, but what's so striking to me is how consistent it is across the country. Uh, before the war began, people were making the easy split between Western and Eastern Ukraine. Western Ukraine was more Western for centuries. Uh, it was more Ukrainian-speaking. It had many Catholics and Protestants as well as Orthodox in comparison with Eastern Ukraine, which is heavily Russian-speaking. But what is so striking is how anti-Russian, Russian-speaking Ukrainians are. Just to give you one example, 
Kharkiv, the second largest city in the country, well over a million in population, and they are strongly opposing the Russian invasion. I think it's stunning many of the Russian troops who were fed the propaganda line that you're going to be welcomed with flowers and salt and bread, traditional gifts of liberators. And those people in Kharkiv do not see Russians as liberators. Well, why might the Russian-speaking people of eastern Ukraine oppose the Russian invasion? Well, they have the example of what's been going on in Donetsk and Luhansk, the so-called Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, after the the Don River Basin. That's where the word or acronym Donbass comes from. People in Kharkiv and other parts of Ukraine have seen what a horrific, torture-prone regime has emerged among separatists in Donbass. And they don't want anything like that to fall upon them. Right. Absolutely. You know, that is one of the, one of the things you go back to talk about about Russian propaganda and, you know, the efficacy at which Zelensky uses social media. You know, on one hand, Russian propaganda wants us to wants people to believe, wants the world to believe, wants Russian people to believe that everybody's on the same page here. We're all for this invasion of Ukraine. And that's actually not the case. And then on the other hand, you have Zelensky actually showing POWs, Russian POWs, explaining what they thought that they were doing. And this is a complete breakdown. I don't know that that Putin actually expected that. Um, What, you know, you mentioned the people in the Russian people in Ukraine. Are you hearing anything about what people in Russia actually feel about Um, what's happening in Ukraine? Yes, uh, the population is split, and it's understandable, really, why it would be so. The older generations, which receive most of their news, if not all of their news, from television, which is completely dominated by Russian propaganda, the majority of older Russians are supportive of Putin's invasion. I would suggest that the majority, or at least a huge number, of the younger generation oppose him. And it's evident from the extraordinary surprise of the number of public protests. You know, there's a new law just as of a week ago that anybody spouting statements that do not fit the Kremlin line on the invasion are subject to up to 15 years in jail. How many of us, if we were protesting anything, would go out on the streets if we thought we might be facing a 15-year jail sentence? But thousands upon tens of thousands of Russians, in last count I saw over 60 Russian cities have had demonstrations. And last count I saw something like nine or 10,000 people have been arrested. What will be their fate? Another fascinating and amazing phenomenon are groups that are signing petitions. And here we get into the Christian community. About a week ago, a group of evangelicals in Russia signed a petition. The first draft I saw of it had 81 signatures. I received a a new draft of this petition opposing the war 
signed by 375 Russian evangelicals. This is extraordinary because people signing such a document, they should expect retribution. Correct. Uh, short of a miracle. It, so you know, it really shows. is. I mean, for anyone who is not familiar with Russian history, um, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about um, the opening of the Gulag Archipelago by um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where he talks about someone knocking on the door. And if you're putting your name to a piece of paper, objecting to something, you can almost at least have that fear, that memory rise up of the knocks on the door that people received, you know, decades ago. That's right. And I'd like to add, uh, Haley, if I could, the reaction of the Russian Orthodox Church to the invasion. At the official level, it's been strongly supportive of Putin. The statements put out in coming from his sermons of recent days, Patriarch Kirill has been extremely supportive of Putin, saying some really outrageous things, referring to Ukraine, for example, two days ago, as the prodigal son. And um, in contrast to that, very courageous Russian Orthodox priests, a number of them, have signed a petition, again, opposing the war, parallel to this evangelical set of signatures. That's uh, amazing. Uh, yeah, last count, uh, 300 priests had signed that. None of the bishops are metropolitans, but ordinary priests, 300 plus. And so again, that, that is really significant considering Russian history. I mean, it's hard for Americans to understand, you know, what a change in the tide this is and what a revelation as well. Because, you know, we're used to protests here. We're used to people signing petitions. But that is not the history of Russia. That is definitely a change in the tide. Yeah, let me just give you one personal example. And I won't name a name because I don't want to endanger anybody. But I know the leader of one Protestant denomination in Russia. And just this morning, I saw his name. I just got a hold of this list of 375 evangelicals who had signed this protest petition. And the leader of this denomination, whom I know personally, he's been in my home here in Wilmore, Kentucky. He's spoken at Asbury Seminary and Asbury University. And he signed that petition. That is a very courageous step, and I pray for his safety. Yeah. Well, Dr. Elliott, thank you so much for being with us today and shedding a little bit more light on what's happening in Ukraine and how we can pray for the people of Ukraine. Thank you. You've been listening to Christian Curious. Be sure to check out our website for more episodes and to learn more about us. Reach out anytime with your comments or questions to Haley at ChristianCurious.com. That's H-A-L-E-E at ChristianCurious.com. Stay curious. Curious.